Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Recently, Bloomberg warned that, forget the soft landing consensus, a recession is, quote, likely and coming soon. To their credit, Bloomberg puts the blame where it belongs, on our crowded clown car of prestigious mainstream economists. I've mentioned in recent videos how mainstream media is finally admitting what we've been saying for months, that the soft landing was regime propaganda, and that we are in for a big one. Bloomberg kicks off noting that the soft landing line has been trotted out before every single recession since 1969, when the phrase was popularized after the moon landing, if you believe in such things. In essence, the very phrase soft landing is a sure sign that a serious recession is coming. Sort of like the phrase, the banking system is fundamentally sound, precedes financial crashes, or don't throw the ball in the house, precedes broken lamps. If they're talking about it, you know it's bad. Now, Bloomberg suggests the surprise is because our ruling clique of mainstream economists have no idea what they're doing, writing, quote, Why do economists find it so difficult to anticipate recessions? One reason is forecasters assume what happens next will be some kind of extension of what's already happened, a linear process. But recessions are nonlinear events. The human mind is not good at thinking about them. Well, mainstream economists are not good at thinking about them. We saw this failure in living color during the 2008 recession, when our billion-dollar armies of arrogant PhDs never saw it coming. Their response, naturally, was to demand more budget so they can think harder next time, which, so far, they have failed to do. I think the problem is actually much deeper beyond the linear thing, namely that modern mainstream economists learn almost no theory. They're essentially statisticians counting up things they don't understand and then correlating them. In fact, they're quite proud of it, the ideal being that the data speaks, like in physics. The problem is humans are not, in fact, rocks. You can't look at a person driving south on a highway and predict he'll keep going to Antarctica. You need to understand why he's driving. Is he going home? Is he stopping by Chipotle? Is there an ocean in the way? So the miles per hour due south, the data, it may well speak, but it doesn't actually say anything useful. So what should they be doing instead? We have centuries of economic theory and thousands of years of economic history that actually do identify patterns in real-world economies. The boom-bust cycle, the manipulated interest rates, the policy errors, the government spending that leaves stagflation in their wake. Austrian economists use these, I use them, but for mainstream, the world is a dizzying array of blinking statistical associations, each liable to change at any time for any mysterious reason, and so, like medieval peasants who sacrifice a virgin instead of three goats, didn't rain for a month, so that's worth a Nobel Prize. So what is next? They won't improve their accuracy because the incentives are not there. Government economists are paid mouthpieces, intellectual bodyguards of the regime, as Rothbard put it, and it won't change so long as their paycheck's clear. In case you're wondering, I'm shooting from Tokyo these next couple weeks. Back in the real world, it is a mixed bag. The bad news is we got yet another World War III. The good news is stocks are soaring. This, of course, strikes many people as odd, as it should. Why is catastrophe so good for stocks? And the answer is simple. Jerome's money printers. A few days ago, I walked through some possible scenarios for markets after the attacks on Israel. 
using what happened our last surprise war when Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine, along with what happened last time we had raging inflation and widespread war in the Middle East in the 1970s. I noted in both cases that stocks crashed, oil soared, and both gold and the dollar went up as money fled to safety. So here we are 10 days after the attack, and so far most of that did happen. Gold is up 6%, which is quite a bit. Oil is up 7%, and the dollar is up, albeit a measly half percent. The one that very much did not happen is stocks. In fact, they went up a lot, 600 points on the Dow and almost 100 on the S&P, so that's good for roughly 2%, which is quite a bit for just over a week. That's about a 91% gain annualized. So why did stocks buck the trend? And the answer is simple, the Federal Reserve. The Monday after the attacks, stocks initially plunged in the morning, but then they saw the light from St. Jerome with what Barron's Magazine called, quote, dovish rumblings by Fed officials Logan and Jefferson, who dutifully marched out to announce that after deep and careful thought, the Federal Reserve has now realized that perhaps rates can be lower after all. So there are two lessons from this. First, the entire global economy is the Fed's plaything. War, pestilence, alien invasion, it all falls to the mighty money printer that, of course, eats your life savings. Second, this explains why the Fed, in fact, why Washington, so bravely soldiers on through swinging scimitars, snapping crocodiles, fire-breathing dragons, because it knows that it can shoot untold trillions of your life savings at any crisis that comes along. Yes, even the crises the Fed creates, like, say, raining down $6 trillion to buy totalitarian lockdowns, immediately followed by the tightest strangle in 50 years that sucker-punched a banking system that had gored like fat leeches upon the cheap money. So all of it, the wars, the lockdowns, the gorged leeches, bowed to the continent-sized counterfeiting machine we lovingly call the Federal Reserve Balance Sheet, which at the moment stands ready to flood Earth with that true opiate of the masses, paper money. Every crisis converted into inflation, lovingly sugar-coated and greedy grocers, grabby workers, Mr. Putin's wars, until the masses settle down and open wide for the next dose. Now, all of this runs on your money, naturally, diluting your life savings from the rich stew when you earned it into a thin gruel that hopefully keeps you alive in your twilight years. So what is next? The Fed, as always, is playing with fire. By neutralizing each crisis, tranquilizing the public into thinking all of it is free, the Fed is setting up yet more inflation, which, given past form, it will crush the productive economy to fight, since the Fed will always choose rate hikes over federal spending cuts. As for the Middle East, everything depends how wide the conflict spreads, but far beyond the Middle East, expect an endless parade of crises all of them financed by your life savings, courtesy of the Federal Reserve. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. 
A few days ago, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, one of the more embarrassing laureates, was being roasted for a tweet he put out saying, quote, the war on inflation is over. We won at very little cost. Before getting into the cost that was not paid by Paul Krugman, it's worth taking a moment to appreciate the sheer mendacity of Paul's little chart crime here, one that my colleague E.J. Antoni noted would make Goebbels blush at its dishonesty. So here it is in all its glory. First, note Paul's very pleasing slope on the curve. Bit of a scare in the beginning, then a gradual decline that ends spot on the Fed's target 2% inflation rate. Jerome Powell is just that good. Sadly, however, we then turn to the X and Y axes. Up top is what's actually being counted here. Turns out this is not inflation. This is Krugman's imaginary friend taking the consumer price index and stripping out food, energy, housing, rent, and used cars. I literally had to check if it was a joke, but no, this is the state of Nobel economics in 2023. The fun does not end there because we still have the y-axis over there on the left side. Turns out this is not even annual change. No, this is six-month change at annual rate, which you get by taking the last six numbers and squaring it. Why would you do that, you ask? Because that's the only way to get the slope. Actually, imagine Paul burning the midnight solar panels, sloping out three months to the fourth power, four months cubed, five and a half months of partridge in a pear tree. I know it is very embarrassing when your imaginary friend still needs a six-month annualized chart. So what happens if you use an honest chart? Here's the numbers direct from the Federal Reserve for the last 12 months. Notice we haven't won diddly. In fact, it's getting worse with the most recent two months averaging a 6% pace of inflation. Next, have a gander at core inflation, which is the Fed's favorite indicator for underlying inflation. It strips out food and energy, which always struck me as suspicious, since those are the two categories that make voters angriest. Still, even if we take the Fed at its word, notice the distinctly unpleasing slope. Core had a one-night stand below 2% back in June-July, and now it is back to rising. Now, Paul has been in the game a long time. He knows darn well that the Fed publishes all these statistics every single month. He knows he had to sit alone in a basement and crank out homebrew CPI with goal-seek months, and he knows why he did it, because for the same reason he does it all. He is a paid shill who owes it all, including even the Nobel Prize, to licking the correct boots in the correct order. So what is next? What's next is the worse things get, the more they will lie. Biden, Powell, Yellen, they all have a literal army of prestigious PhD economists who stand the wall ready to suppress any opinion, sugarcoat any statistic, gaslight any voter they come across. It's an industrial-scale disinformation campaign, all generously funded by your tax dollars to be weaponized against you. Will not stop until it is defunded, starting with the very universities that employ people like Paul Krugman. A few days ago, Joe Biden stumbled out of his basement to tell America we shall now be fighting two wars, since, after all, we can afford it. As Wall Street Silver put it, of course we can't afford two wars, we can't even afford peace. The current resident of the White House delivered the news on 60 Minutes, where interviewer Scott Pelley asked, are the wars in Israel and Ukraine more than the United States can take on at the same time? Biden responded angrily, No, we're the United States of America, for God's sakes, the most powerful nation in the world, not in the world, in the history of the world, the history of the world. This is all direct quotes. He added, We can take care of both of these and still maintain our overall international defense. 
In other words, the wars will continue, despite $2 trillion deficits and $34 trillion in national debt, along with yet more trillions in deficits when the recession actually hits in force. Why? Because the most powerful in the history of God's sake does precisely that. It goes bankrupt, blowing things up, or being blown up all over the world. Biden went on to say the reason we're involved in Ukraine, giving them weapons, intelligence, $100 billion here and there, risking a dollar collapse in World War III, is so that we don't get drawn into a European war. So we're involved in a European war, so we don't have to get involved in a European war. A lesser intellect might respond that perhaps the way to not get drawn into a war is not to get drawn into it. But Joe Biden is playing 3D chess here. Moreover, what's concerning is that it's not just the two wars. That little throwaway line at the end there, the overall international defense, that is referring to the 200-odd mini-wars the Pentagon keeps on a simmer in hopes one of them could someday grow up to be a real war and raise Lockheed's dividend. One recent chart from Visual Capitalist shows precisely 177 countries in which the U.S. military are deployed. An updated list would actually have to include most of sub-Saharan Africa, including vital interest Burkina Faso and Taiwan, where the U.S. has now stationed Marines to ensure a guaranteed tripwire for World War III. So what is next? What's next is the military-industrial complex is gutting America, draining our blood and dwindling treasure to make America the maximum number of enemies in the shortest amount of time. This actually puts the American people in danger. It is the precise opposite of defense, while keeping hundreds of wars on simmer worldwide, killing people on both sides. In his 1961 farewell address, Dwight D. Eisenhower warned of exactly this, saying, quote, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. There was a rush of momentary optimism a few years ago with Trump, who was deeply hostile to the permanent wars. Unfortunately, with Trump now out of power, both of America's political parties are dominated by warmongers. And so Eisenhower's disastrous rise of misplaced power is upon us. Today it's two wars. Tomorrow will be three. They literally will not stop. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. Fresh inflation numbers are out, and as we have been saying for months now, there is no sign inflation is going away. What came out was September CPI, which in theory tallies up the price of everything Americans buy. It came in higher than Wall Street expected, clocking 0.4% on the month, which is almost 5% annualized. That makes three months now of flat or rising inflation. Meanwhile, core CPI that strips out food and energy, which is the number the Fed cares about, was once again stuck above 4%. This is bad because every month core stays above 4, and that's over two years now, it bakes in inflation, meaning that people adjust their lives around future inflation. They negotiate higher contracts, they raise prices, they invest on the assumption 
that prices will rise significantly. The Fed fears this because it's afraid it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy that people expect inflation, and so inflation happens. That scares the Fed more than an unadjusted economic statistic. So with these latest numbers, at this point, consumer prices are up 17% since Joe Biden took office. That's 17% official numbers. You can use your imagination for the true figures. Even at 17, though, this means the typical American family is now $7,300 poorer per year than they were when Joe fixed America. So that's about $600 per month hit to the typical American family. Now, a lot of that came out of groceries and the gas pump. Food is up 20%. Again, these are the official numbers with meat jumping closer to 25%. That's partly because farmers culled their herds because feed and labor costs went up so much that they could not afford to feed them. So yes, inflation kills cows. Even pet food is up almost 25%, putting Fido on borrowed time. In energy costs, it has been brutal. And gasoline is up almost 60%, home heating oil nearly 80%, This is largely because Joe Biden strangled America's energy renaissance and then drained our strategic petroleum reserve and sold a bunch of it to China. So it is it's about half gone at this point. And yes, you will wear two sweaters and you will be happy. And finally, the big one, housing. Between soaring home costs, leaping mortgage rates and flying insurance and property taxes, housing costs have more than doubled under Joe Biden. So that racks up at least a thousand in extra costs per month for the median home. All this is up against earnings that have fallen hard under Biden for two reasons. First, because wages fell behind inflation, as always happens. And second, because companies are now cutting hours in preparation for the recession that everybody knows is coming unless they are paid not to know. So what's next? What's next is a gradual realization by markets and voters that the stagflation of the past couple of years could be permanent, that it was not a one-off from lockdowns. Rather, it's the new normal as the federal government settled into its new crisis level of spending. Essentially, COVID was the crisis they always wanted, and now they're keeping the trillion-dollar deficits. With fresh wars and fresh recessions on the horizon, there is a lot more to come. A key claim of modern central banking is that printing money, inflation, grows the economy. This is core to the Keynesian-Phillips curve that says there's a trade-off between inflation and employment. That is, if you want prosperity, you print money, and if you print too much, you choke the productive economy, which kills jobs. Note the punchline, if printing money makes us grow, you should do as much as possible. Of course, non-Keynesians know inflation is simply theft, but where does the inflationist growth fallacy come from? In short, it confuses activity with wealth. To illustrate, if Hunter Biden prints a million dollars and hits Vegas for the weekend, there will be a lot of busy strippers. It's fantastic for Vegas, a tissue fire of economic growth, an extra million in GDP in however long Hunter's high lasts. Of course, where did the money come from? Well, it was siphoned from every other dollar in the world, like water into wine. So grandma now pays a little bit more for groceries, but Hunter had one hell of a weekend. So activity was created. Wealth was not. In fact, it was stolen. Now, there is a way around this. A thought experiment first proposed by Milton Friedman in 1969, helicopter money. You fly a helicopter over the city, dumping out money. It's a thought experiment, remember? 
Governments, sadly, do not have money helicopters, but they do have stimulus checks. Still, even stimulus distorts. The young and the irresponsible spend it fast, while the old and prudent spend slow. So extra shifts for these strippers, but grandma's grocery store shuts down. Fortunately, we have another thought experiment that can reliably test whether printing makes us rich, called the Wallet Fairy. This little critter sneaks into every bedroom, bank vault, and payroll department across America on December 23rd, that is the founding of the Federal Reserve, and he draws an extra zero on the money. So you went to bed with 10 bucks in your pocket, you wake up with 100. Your $1,000 checking account is now 10,000. You made 15 an hour at Best Buy, now you make 150. Perfect helicopter money. So are we rich? Do Best Buy associates buy beachfront mansions? And that's of course not, because everybody sees what happened and changed the price. Houses aren't 400,000, they're 4 million. Bubble teas are 50 bucks. So there's no tissue fire because nobody was fooled. The extra zero was too obvious. We've actually had similar situations in reverse. So Mexico in the 90s lopped off three zeros off the peso. It was embarrassing having 3,000 per dollar. So now a dollar only bought three pesos. What happened? Everybody adjusted overnight. A coffee went from 5,000 pesos to five. It was completely cosmetic. Nothing changed. Unfortunately, in the real world, inflation is never so obvious as the wallet ferry, which is why that tissue fire happens. It takes time for the new money to circulate. The first recipients are Hunter on the Strip. Some prices can take years, like salaries or contracts, meaning years of stolen trillions and little tissue fires as the first recipients spend. So the entire alleged benefit of inflation, that tissue fire, the Phillips curve, turns out to be entirely based on deception, on people either not realizing what just happened or being last in line for the money. So what's next? What's next is the inflation propaganda machine will not quit because there's too much money in counterfeiting. We'll only stop when the masses see through it, realize that inflation is institutionalized theft that creates nothing but destroys everything it can. One of the big mysteries of today's economy is why are stocks holding up so well even as inflation swells and growth goes limp? And it turns out there is a very simple explanation. Just seven stocks are holding up the entire stock market. A few months ago, S&P Global tallied up the numbers, finding that the so-called Magnificent Seven, that's Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, and NVIDIA, accounted for fully 110% of stock market gains year to date. In other words, the good part of the economy is seven companies. The bad part is the other 5,993 companies. Even that, however, has got a big grain of salt since most of the Magnificent Seven was essentially bouncing off a disastrous year in 2022, when stagflation fears drove Apple and Microsoft down 30%, Amazon and Google down by half, and Tesla and Facebook dropped almost two-thirds, making 2023 pretty much a dead cat bounce in market lingo, a warm day in the middle of winter. So that pretty much leaves Taiwan-based NVIDIA as the only bright spot in the American economy. Now, investment analyst Jim Bianco updated the tally a couple weeks ago. He found that not much has changed with that same magnificent seven accounting for fully 98% of stock market gains all the way through October, while smaller companies were flat to negative on the year. So-called micro caps, meaning companies worth less than 350 million, actually lost 8.5% of their value over the course of the year. 
So what is happening here? Now, generally speaking, big business is built for the Biden economy, meaning that they have lobbyists on speed dial, they have expensive lawyers and tax accountants on permanent retainer, and they have impressive compliance departments that can laugh off regulators that kill their smaller competitors. But that is only half the story, considering that every single one of the Magnificent Seven is a tech company. Plus the fact that the tech-heavy Nasdaq has outperformed the rest of the market over the course of the year. That suggests something else is happening, that it may be more about risk appetite, specifically that markets relaxed about stagflation as headline CPI has been coming down the past year, because falling CPI suggests that the Fed could cut rates sooner, which turns back on the easy money drug that feeds tech stocks, growth stocks in general. If that's what's happening here, then it means the entire stock market is held up by a seven-company string, which is itself duct-taped to a greasy patch of head-faked CPI, meaning when and if financial markets finally notice that inflation is stuck, in fact, it's rising, the very last leg could come out of the stock market. So what's next? For the past six months, I've characterized investing in stocks as picking up dimes in front of steamrollers. With money market accounts now paying 5%, it is hard to see how stock investors are getting paid for the risk. And so for many, it is becoming a very good time to pull some cash out, to park it at 5% and see what's next. Note, I could always be wrong. I, for one, did not expect COVID to send the S&P up 50%, but seven stocks and a CPI on the move is a very fragile place to invest your life savings. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.